So in studying the book, we've looked at how church members should carry themselves, what church leaders should exist, uh, overseers and deacons, uh, what they should do, and why they're important regarding the total health of the church. So this week we will start in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, and Paul is going to go into a light discussion about a foretold departure from sound doctrine, which kind of explains why he's making such a big deal about this in the letter so far. Okay, So hopefully you're there in 1 Timothy chapter 4. I'll go ahead and read verses 1 through 5 for us. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So it starts off in verse 1 here. It says, Now the Spirit expressly says. So right off the bat, Paul gives us the source of this revelation he's fixing to tell us. He says the Holy Spirit has foretold through revelation that this is going to happen. There's going to be some who abandon the faith. When he talks about the faith, some will depart from the faith. This is the gospel message of Jesus. Jesus died to justify us, to save us. He died to sanctify us, to make us holy. And he died to glorify us, to transform us in heaven so that we're without sin. So to put this a little bit differently, Paul says the Spirit warns us about a future threat to the truth of the gospel. There's a threat to the truth. It's going to happen in the future. And the Spirit is warning against that. John refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of truth in several places in Scripture. John 14, 15, and 16 you see it multiple times there, and in 1 John chapter 4. And contrasted with the spirit of truth, we have, towards the end of verse 1, we have the opposition. It says that some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. The greatest battle in this world is the battle between truth and every other lie that is brought against it. That is what we are engaged in as Christians. It's a battle for the truth. We believe that Jesus is the truth. The world does not believe that Jesus is the truth. This is our great battle. And it makes sense that the enemy, Satan, the father of lies, would use lies to battle the truth. We should expect that. The truth of God is that God loves us, John 3.16, that he's good and that all of his ways are good, Psalm 119.68, that he works all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28. But the lies of this world are that there is no God, that each man is his own God and is in complete control of his own life. That God is cruel, that God is wicked, that the pleasures of sin outweigh the pleasures of God, that we reap rewards from God based on how much I can please God with what I do, that all roads 
lead to God. Not just the Christian road, but all roads. The battle in this world is between truth and lies. And at the heart of this battle is the church. This is what we looked at last week. The church is the pillar and buttress of truth. This all ties back to Paul's whole point of writing this letter. Be intentional and be careful with how you operate God's church. Because the church is engaged in a battle over the truth of God. Therefore, put right people in place to teach the truth and to fight for the truth. Therefore, put right people in place to demonstrate the truth in their service to the church. Therefore, be prepared for the battle that lies ahead when some will come into the church with lies. So nestled in between these two spirits, the spirit of truth and the spirit of deceit, we have this timeline here. The spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart. There's two things I want to note here. Number one, we are in the later times now. This was written in the past. So technically, when he says in the future, this will happen. This is the future. We are living in the future times that he's talking about right here. We are the future date. We've already seen people sneak into the church with deceptive spirits and the teachings of demons, leading many to depart from the faith. So people think, well, yeah, but that hadn't happened in our church. That doesn't really, you know, what does that apply to us? This book was in our church library. This man is Joel Osteen. His face should look familiar. You see this, I think every Walmart I've ever been to has one of his books. See the big, bright smile. Joel Osteen is a false teacher. He teaches something called the prosperity gospel. You may not be familiar with what this is. Maybe, and I've had this before in a Bible study with sixth graders, and one of the sixth graders spoke up and said, Oh, my dad listens to Joel Osteen all the time. Uh oh. That's not to say that everything he says is false. Joel Osteen is a really good motivational speaker. You know what he's really good at? Helping people to have a positive attitude. That's terrific. He is not good at proclaiming the gospel. He believes that the way to achieve your best life now, that's actually the title of this book, is to just have the right mindset and to speak the right words over your life. And if you pursue God with faith and declare his word over your life, it will be done to you. And if it's not, you didn't ask with enough faith. If you look through this book, I'm just going to go to the table of contents. Here's how to have your best life now. First, you need to enlarge your vision. Know that God has more in store for you, that you would increase in favor. You need to live favor-minded. Number two, develop a healthy self-image. Number three, discover the power of your thoughts and words. Number four, let go of the past. Number five, find strength through adversity. Number six, live to give. Number seven, choose to be happy. That's his secret. If you read through the book... 
and you get to the very last page before the notes, I think this is a good summary. God doesn't want your business to merely make it through the murky economic waters. He wants your business to sail and to excel. When God restores, he always brings you out better, improved, increased, and multiplied. He has a vision for total victory for your life. Hold on to that new, enlarged vision of victory that God has given you. Start expecting things to change in your favor. Dare to boldly declare that you are standing strong against the forces of darkness. You will not settle for a life of mediocrity. Raise your level of expectancy. I'm not going to keep going. There's one thing blaringly missing from this. Jesus. Jesus. And if you think, well, Garrett, I think you're being unfair in your critique of Joel Osteen. Go and listen to his sermons, and I challenge you. Pay attention to how much of the Bible he uses. Listen for references to sin. You're not going to hear it. You know why? Because he's already said, I don't really focus on that in my church. I just want people to know how good God is. I don't need to talk about that. So he denies the problem of sin, and he leads people to think that a, a fulfilling life is one where you just speak positivity over your life, and then God will bless that to you. That's a false gospel. This was in our church. I'm sure by a well-meaning person, if you donated this, I'm not saying you have done this dastardly thing. What I'm saying is this is the largest church in our country. The deceitful spirits are here, and they are proclaiming lies, and a lot of people are clinging to those lies. So after that, you've got the notes of the book. Two pages later, there's a we want to hear from you page. I want to try to be as fair to Joel as I can. We want to hear from you. And he says, each week I close our international television broadcast by giving the audience an opportunity to make Jesus the Lord of their lives. There it is. Page 310. I'd like to extend that same opportunity to you. Are you at peace with God? A void exists in every person's heart that only God can fill. I'm not talking about joining a church or finding religion. I'm talking about finding life and peace and happiness. Would you pray with me today? Just say, Lord Jesus, I repent of my sins. I ask you to come into my heart. I make you my Lord and Savior. Friend, if you prayed that simple prayer, I believe you have been born again. And then he wants to hear from you. In contrast, this is ironic. In our library, I saw this book. I like this book a lot. J.D. Greer, he was the president of the SBC um, because of coronavirus. It was for two years. He's not anymore. He wrote this book. It's a very large church in north of South Carolina, I believe, and a very large college presence. And this book, uh, Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. You may look at that and be like, what? The subtitle, How to Know for Sure You're Saved. So he's saying there's so many people that ask Jesus into their heart a hundred times. And then they say, oh, but am I really saved? I better do it just one more time to be sure. He's saying stop doing it over and over again. Let's do it one time and let's make it matter. This is a book rich with gospel truth on how to be saved. This is a whole book of that where you have 
one on the back of a back page that says, say this sentence and I think you're saved. A lot of people have bought into that theology. So this is here. This is now in our churches, in our country. We are in these times. Here's an example from their pulpit. This was his wife, technically, but Joel was with her. And on stage, she says this. I just want to encourage every one of us to realize when we obey God, we're not doing it for God. I mean, that's one way to look at it. We're doing it for ourselves because God takes pleasure when we are happy. That's the thing that gives him the greatest joy. So I want you to know this morning, just do good for your own self. Do good because God wants you to be happy. When you come to church, when you worship him, you're not doing it for God, really. You're doing it for yourself because that's what makes God happy. Amen. And the whole church listening says, amen. This has crept into the church unchecked. So if you think, oh, this isn't in our church. It was. (laughs) It was in our church. The enemy is very, very crafty. And he will slip in and sow these seeds. There's other false teachers. I don't want to sound like I'm beating up on Joel Osteen, but he has the biggest church in our country. So I have to say that. Listen, after hearing that, listen to 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2, the first half of verse 2, and I'm going to read verse 5. 2 Timothy 3, 1 and the first half of verse 2, and then verse 5. But understand this. That in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self. Lovers of money. And in verse 5, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. This is it. This is it. So, this is what we're seeing now. When he's talking about those future days, this is now. Here's the second observation I want to make about um, verse 1 here when it says, uh, in later times someone will depart from the faith. What Paul is implying here is that our current way that we structure the church will help protect the church from future attacks. Okay? The reason that we need to be careful and intentional with how we handle things in our church is because... The Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. When we carefully structure the church, Paul was preparing this church. He said, that's going to happen, so here's how you need to do things now. And in the same way for us, when we carefully structure the church, we're not just protecting the current generation. We're protecting the future generation. We're protecting our children and our grandchildren. We want them to have have this church as a solid foundation. We don't want this church to be sold one day and made into a coffee shop like all these grand cathedrals in Europe. We want this to be a house of God for generations. We are laying the foundation now for the longevity of our church. And really, you could look at this as a different perspective and argue that a lot of the problems that we see in our church today stem from the fact that the previous generation wasn't diligent enough to establish protections against these things. 
We suffer now for the church in the past not buckling down on certain issues, just like the next generation will suffer when we don't buckle down on some issues. So this is not a battle for the here and now. This is a long-term strategic plan. So how do these teachings come into the church? Let's move to verse 2 and 3. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So just like the pastors of the church stand and fight for the truth and protect the truth, there are other influencers who stand for, fight for, and try to protect what is contrary to the truth. And one interesting trait is it says that their consciences are seared. That's to say that their consciences don't feel the prick of conviction when the Lord tries to bring it about. Why? Because it's been pricked over and over and over and it's calloused now and they can't feel it. They've been believing the lie for so long they don't recognize the truth. They think the lie is the truth. When we continually submit to a lie over the truth of God's word, we make ourselves numb to future conviction against sin. If we ignore conviction on a certain sin in our life, guess what's going to happen? You'll stop feeling bad about it. And you know what happens after that? You begin to justify it and say, well, I don't really feel convicted anymore. Maybe it's not really that big of a deal to God. And the problem is you've been living in a lie so long you can't distinguish it from the truth. Your conscience is seared. This is how sin multiplies in the life of believers and non-believers. I know of an example where a man entertained the idea of divorce for so long that he eventually felt no conviction over it, though he didn't qualify for a single biblical ground for divorce. There wasn't sexual immorality, there wasn't adultery, there wasn't abuse, and his words were this, God has given me peace about this. If that's true, then God is a liar. Because God has told us in his word, he hates it. So we lie to ourselves and we live in sin and then we think, well, God must be okay with it because I don't feel bad anymore. That's not a good enough reason to say, eh, I think it's okay. We have to go back to God's word. We have to go back to the truth and stop giving in to these lies. When our consciences are seared, we make ourselves more susceptible to further lies regarding God's sin and righteousness. And this is what we see playing out in verse 3. It says that they forbid marriage. They require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. I think almost all of us can agree these things are wrong. Obviously, marriage shouldn't be forbidden. Obviously, food shouldn't be – we shouldn't be abstained from. But we only believe that because we've been taught that. We've been taught a proper theology that influences us to act rightly in those areas. Well, the flip side of this is if we are taught a faulty theology, it will lead us into ungodly actions. And I want to give another example here, and this one hits home close for me. My aunt 
is a little known fact. My aunt is a very famous theologian. True story. Has her doctorate from Southern Seminary, where I'm currently going to seminary. True story. Got it in 1987. Old Testament studies, I believe. Has written books. Has traveled the globe speaking. Very famous theologian. Very, very liberal theologian. She lives with a female partner. She's homosexual. She conducts homosexual weddings. We have very different views on the book I'm holding in my hand right now. And she was taught this from the seminary where I'm currently going. When it was in a season of liberal theology. And whenever I applied to the seminary and I told her I'm going to go to Southern Seminary. The seminary had drastically changed. Very conservative now. And she told me, Garrett, I think you're making a mistake. You know, the seminary has really veered off course. Which if she's liberal in her theology and it veers off course, that means I probably want to go there. It's very conservative. But the point is, her belief in these things, her belief that homosexuality is not an abomination before the Lord, leads her to do what? Practice homosexuality and endorse that in others. Same thing with our previous example with divorce. If someone thinks, well, God will make exceptions and allowances for divorce, then what's going to happen? They will continue to find exceptions and allowances for divorce instead of sticking out a hard marriage. Almost every ungodly action we engage in can be traced back to an ungodly idea in our mind. That is being informed by a lie versus the truth of God's word. Almost every time. And it's the same thing with forbidding marriage and from abstaining from these foods. So we see that they were being forbidden. But then we see that God created these things to be received with thanksgiving by whom? By those who believe and know the truth. So at three different points in this passage... We have references to truth versus deceit. There's deceitful spirits. There's the insincerity of liars. And then there's no, those who know the truth. Our obedience and holiness will not exceed the level of effort we put into learning the truth of God. Put differently, you are not going to be more holy than you spend time in God's word. If you don't open this book and leave it to the side, you shouldn't expect to have this book change your life. It doesn't work like that. It comes through disciplined study of the word. And as we put in, we get things out from that. When you're not putting things in, you're not filling your mind with the truth of God's word. You are not preparing yourself to recognize the lies that the enemy wants you to believe. One reason that we're so deceived so often is because we don't have a good understanding of the truth to compare it with. We hear a lie and we can't discern it from the truth because if we're honest, we don't really know the truth that well. R.C. Sproul, got one more book here for you. This one will be up front. This is my personal copy of the book. If I tremendously highly recommend this book. Before another book I recently read, this was my number one recommendation for people to read. I'm going to leave it here if you want to come get the name of it. Um, please don't take this book. Uh, this is my personal copy. I'll order you one if you want one. 
but you can come get the name of that there. Uh, R.C. Sproul is who wrote it. He's passed away now. It's called The Holiness of God, and he says this in his book. It's really good. He says, it's been said that nothing dispels a lie faster than the truth. Nothing exposes the counterfeit faster than the genuine. Clever counterfeit dollars may be unnoticed by the untrained eye. What every counterfeiter fears is that someone will examine his bogus bill while holding a genuine one next to it. The presence of Jesus represented the presence of the genuine in the midst of the bogus. Here the authentic holiness appeared. The counterfeiters of holiness were not pleased. So he's talking about Jesus versus the Pharisees. But this idea of seeking holiness and the Pharisees had this false counterfeit holiness and it was exposed. How? When Jesus came on the scene and they had something to compare it to. And it's the same way with God's word. We won't know the lies and the counterfeits unless we know the truth of God's word. So it's on us to pursue these things. Christ is the fullness of truth. And we glimpse of that fullness through his word. The final two verses here, four and five. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So here we have this idea kind of tied up into a nice little bow. How is it that I can tell if something is good to do and something that's not good to do? What do I abstain from? When do I not abstain? Here's what he says. He says, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So does that mean that if I just thank God, I can do whatever I want? Is that what he's saying? Not quite. If you keep reading for. It is made holy by the word of God and prayer. What Paul is saying here is not just ask and thank God for unholy things and suddenly they'll be holy. It's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that by going to God's word and going to God in prayer, we are equipping ourselves to receive what God permits with thanksgiving, knowing that we're enjoying it as a good creation of God. God created everything good, but we don't use everything in the way that God intended for us to use it. And in doing that, it is not good. When we take what God made good and use it according to our own devices against God's will, it becomes an unholy thing. And so the opposite is also true. When we go to God's word and go to God in prayer and use it as he intends, it becomes a good thing. One of the best examples of this that I would give to students in student ministry all the time is talking about sex with them. They are very interested in it, and they are engaging in it much earlier than people did whenever you were younger. Much earlier. And the example that I give is that sex is a gift from God and is meant for us to enjoy. However, what we do is we take this gift and we use it according to how we want to use it. And this is where the corruption comes in. Sexual immorality comes into play. Sex outside of marriage. Sex with family members. Sex with members of the same gender. 
You see, by going to God's word and going to God in prayer, we're able to seek God on these things and say, God, how did you intend for this gift to be used? And then when we engage in it the way that God intended for us to engage in it, you know what we find out? This is a holy and good thing. Thank you, God, for this gift. And it's like that with many other things. I want to briefly tie all this back to Christ. In Romans 14, 23, he speaks about the freedom to eat foods, ironically. He says, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith. Here's the phrase I want you to focus on. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This is a heavy statement. Whatever, this is Romans 14, 23. If you want to chew on this verse for the next several weeks, I've been chewing on it for months and years. It is so, it is so thick. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. When we have faith in God, we are finally, after years of rebelling against the truth, we are embracing the truth of the gospel. Therefore, before we have faith in God, everything we do is sinful because it is not done in faith. Okay, now this is going to be thick. I'm going to give you an example so you can see what I'm saying. Think about the Grand Canyon. Out of curiosity, how many of you have seen the Grand Canyon in here? Okay, good. Imagine going to the Grand Canyon and enjoying, and enjoying the sight. And you're a believer. You look out and you see the Grand Canyon and what do you think? Wow, what a beautiful display of God's glory and creation. Praise God. This is so good. Now I want you to imagine that you're not a believer. You do not have faith in God. You see the Grand Canyon and you marvel and you say, wow. Imagine what you might be thinking. Wow, what a beautiful stroke of dumb luck. Wow, what a beautiful depiction of. Of science and understanding that nature is just a random process of all things being created from nothing. Wow, what a beautiful sight. There is nothing better for me to cast my eyes upon, to gaze upon. The, the reaction was the same. You look and you say, so beautiful. The one that's done in faith praises God for his creation. That's what it's designed for. The one who does not do it in faith, they see that beauty and they say, huh, dumb luck made this. That's an offense to God. Or they say, nothing is as beautiful as this. That's an offense to God. God is beautiful. Or, huh, this really supports my justification that God doesn't exist. It's sin. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So no matter how you spin it, apart from faith, you base all of your enjoyment and attribute all great and good things, center all of your thoughts on things other than God who deserves 
our praise. Therefore, it's sinful. Why do I bring this up? It is the freedom that is granted to us through Christ when we have faith that enables us to truly live for God's glory instead of living for a lie. When we come to faith in Christ, now my life is centered around the truth of God instead of centered around a lie. And in the same way, if we do not pursue God in faith through his word and prayer, we will not be equipped with the truth that we need to pursue true holiness. We'll be pursuing other things that are lies. So my faith in Christ frees me up to live in the truth in the same way my faith in this book and my dedication to read it exposes me to the truth of it and enables me to live free from sin. That's that's the comparison. Whatever doesn't happen from faith is sin. Whatever does happen in faith is good. Whatever does not happen based on what we do out of this book, I'm not living my life by this. I'm living my life by that. But if we pursue the truth of God's word, we will grow in holiness. The things that we enjoy will not be made holy necessarily and that they were unholy before. But they will be used the way that God intended. Because we are pursuing them and enjoying them in light of our faith. This is the battle that the church is called to prepare for. We have to equip ourselves with God's word. And all of this stems back to why he's writing the whole book in the first place. How are we going to best do that? By making sure that we operate as a church as biblically as possible. With all the safeguards in place to make sure that our doctrine is protected. That our devotion is protected. We want to crave and long for the Lord. We want to thirst for the Lord and thirst for his word. And when we do that, we will be protected Our kids will be protected. Our grandkids will be protected. And this church will be a thriving church for decades and decades to come. That's my hope. So I really do want to challenge you. Please do not take this lightly. Please spend time thinking and chewing. And if you want to talk about this, I would love to talk with you about it. Call up here and let's schedule a time to talk about it. Maybe you like the idea. I think this is biblical, but I don't know about some of these things in here. Okay, well, that's what we need to talk about. I don't expect this to pass the way that it is right now. I expect there to be changes. I'm not perfect. So please, please, please consider that. And um, we'll talk about it in the coming weeks. Let's go ahead and pray. We're a little bit late. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. That you sent him to bear your wrath in our place. That we might be forgiven of our sin and filled with the spirit of truth who leads us into all righteousness. Would you lead us through your spirit to your word, the sword of the spirit. That we might be filled with full measure. That our minds might be transformed They might be renewed so that we can test and approve your good, pleasing, perfect will. Father, protect us from the lies that threaten to seep into our church and to sow seeds of destruction. Protect us from those lies that are 
hidden in the midst of truth like a needle in a haystack. Weed these things out for us that we can see them and get rid of them. If there's any lies hidden in our lives right now that are causing us to live in an ungodly way and that maybe our consciences have been seared and we aren't feeling the prick of that conviction, Father, I pray that you would supernaturally break through our stony, calloused hearts. Give us renewed conviction that we might stand up against the lies of the enemy as he seeks to entrap us in our sin. Free us from these things. Help us to embrace your truth and to live according to it all the days of our life. God, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. It's in the name of Christ I pray. Amen.